Welcome to the Wokademia podcast. This time we're, we have Peter Bogosian. Love, love that name. <laughs> um, but we have been asked to start our public events with a uh, land acknowledgement first, um, although I don't fully accept our land acknowledgement, so I've come up with my own. So I would just like to say that I, as a professor at the University of Texas, I fully accept the legitimacy of the government of the state of Texas and its sovereignty over all lands between the Rio Grande and the Red River along with all impoundments and crossings thereof. Can I, can I pause you on that? I think this sure. is a good place to start our conversation. What is the, the land acknowledgement that they have or the one they want you to, they'd like you to read? Do they have one that they, that they? Yes, they have one that they like us to read. We're supposed to acknowledge that we're on Turtle Island. Can you please read that so we could talk about that? Uh, let's you have that ready. Let me see if I can pull it up really. Okay. So our official land acknowledgement says, we would like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the indigenous lands of Turtle Island, the ancestral name for what is now called North America. Moreover, I would like to acknowledge the Alabama Cushada, Caddo, Carrizo, Camacrudo, Comanche, and it goes on and on like this for a while, uh, and all the American Indian and indigenous people and communities who have been or have become part of these lands and territories in Texas. So that is our official land acknowledgement, which is why I feel compelled to jump in and say that I actually believe we're in Texas. Yeah, so, I mean, that's interesting to me if we can just linger on that for a moment. So often I've heard those land acknowledgements with the word stolen in them. So mm -hmm. for example, we're on stolen land. And the thing that's very unusual to me about that is when something is stolen, what is the appropriate moral response to that? Mm -hmm. To give it back. Should we perhaps so, return the university to the yeah, company, so, for example? Now, your land acknowledgement didn't have that, but I've always wondered why, why there's literally nothing stopping universities and people from giving their land back to, to the native peoples. There's literally nothing stopping them. No, they could, that's a very easy contract to write. Yeah, so I don't understand. Uh, it seems to me to be a kind of posturing. I was when I was on tour in Australia. I I, I heard that and I was struck by it. Um, but the word "stolen" isn't in there, and so I, I don't know. I'm just wondering. The the problem is that you know the word "woke" is in your title of your podcast. The pro the problem that we have is that woke people just won't talk to you. They won't have conversations. They won't die. They don't believe that that's, they believe that's a tool of the patriarchy and, and, and oppressive um, nature of systems, et cetera. But I mean, I'd really love to explore that, that idea of a land acknowledgement. The other thing is they've kind of rigged the game so that if you question, even ask questions about the land acknowledgement, suddenly they translate that into your head and they try to swing the narrative as this is a person who hates Native Americans. No, I just want to understand what the purpose of the land acknowledgement is. And I, I would think that if you, you're you now institutionalizing this and you're telling professors that you want to read this or give their own land acknowledgement and have you, I think it's a very reasonable thing that we would ask questions about this. And that's the other thing that's very bizarre to me. I was I just gave a, a talk a little while ago and I, I asked the people in the audience, I don't know how many people, 150 or 200, I don't know, know how many people were, but how many of you have ever, um, have ever heard the word equity outside of a financial context before five years ago? Not a single person in the entire audience 
raised there, literally not one. And so what's interesting to me is we have a value that has almost been wholesale adopted that you can't even question. And if you do question it, you're a bad person. And, and if I may, since we're talking about this, can I just tell a brief anecdote? Please do. So at the university where I was teaching, I will not mention the name of that university, there, where I resigned in September, uh, I went to a conversation. It was in the philosophy department at this university in the Pacific Northwest in Portland, Oregon. And, I, and somebody gave a, a really interesting presentation about Native American philosophy being taught in the department. And I mean, I think this is a, I sincerely do think this is a fantastic idea. The more traditions, the more diversity, the more intellectual um, uh, viewpoints and vantage points we can get to think about, about questions, it, even the more novel to a large extent, the, the more that will help students and my, myself and faculty think through these questions. Well, somebody in the audience who was a full professor raised their hand and said, you know, that was terrific, ter wonderful presentation. I only have one problem and that we're, we're settlers, we're colonists. So I don't feel comfortable and I don't think it's right challenging or questioning a lot of these ideas that have come through, through Native American traditions. And the speaker said, you know, I, I, feel, I feel the same way. And, and I've, I too have wrestled with that. And for now, our role is to just sit and listen. And I was, I was mortified by that. The whole history of Western intellectual thought from Socrates onward is a dialectic, a critique, a counterexample, a wrestling with an idea, trying to show that it's not falsification in the scientific sense, but, you know, defeasible, try, trying to show, you know, under what conditions could the belief be false or it's a, it's a substance. It's not, there is no just listening to ideas and then just letting them kind of seep into you. But if I said anything about that, that I think it's great that we should include Native American traditions, but they need to play by the same rules of the game. Nobody gets, there's no special privilege. There's no special pleading. Everybody gets the same rules of the game. Any tradition can come and we're, we listen, we try to understand, we do Rappaport's rules, and then we offer criticisms and we wrestle with those in the context of other philosophical traditions and classical texts, et cetera. But if I said that, I'd be the guy instantly who hates Native Americans. And at the university where I'm teaching, even to challenge or to think about questioning that would be in career suicide, which I committed many times over. <laughs> but but the, the, the larger point is that we have this idea that there are, you know, land acknowledgments or, you know, there, there are sacred things that must not be, be questioned. And I'm telling you, there, nothing should be sacred. Yeah, I think that this is essential for understanding the, what, what's happening in unit, like, there's this new process to determine what is it's not quite true, but what is what we have to believe that occurs right. before the investigation phase. And so then once you've done that, why do you have all this infrastructure? Why do you have buildings? Why do you have textbooks? If there's another process that has determined what we're supposed to believe, right. what do we do? why do we exist at all? And, Right. And the, the, when an idea is sacred, not only can, can you not question it, but if you do question it, you're a blasphemer and some kind of punishment will be handed down. 
And I think it's worth reflecting again on the values that literally nobody except people in fringe departments ever heard of, like the way the word critical was used and how that's changed or the, the changing of, of certain definitions, uh, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion being the most obvious or pedagogical practices, safe spaces and trigger warnings or um, wor new words that have been invented like houselessness and minoritize, words that point to systemic problems as opposed to descriptors of a problem. I think it's worth reflecting on the idea that these are very, very recent phenomenon. They've, there's been wide scale institutional uh, capture, organizational capture, ideological capture of our institutions. You're not allowed to question or challenge. Forget about, I think people get caught caught up in the right and the left, et cetera. Oh, and then people dispute, well, is it really, you know, the the uh, Greg Lukianoff and others from FIRE have studied, studied statistics of how many people self-identify as on the left and on the right. And then that, that's further broken down by various fields with you know, fewer people on the left being in business. And, and as you go to the softer sciences, anthropology in particular, anything with the word studies, more people are in, okay. So bracketing that for a second, what's, what's to me is particularly interesting is forget about, forget about right, left, people are too caught up in that. Let's say that there were another group of people like um, you know, Mormons, for example, who occupied 95% of the positions at a university. Would you think that's a problem? I would. I would think it's, I have an I arbor no animus against Mormons whatsoever. In fact, every Mormon I've ever met has been totally cool. I really like them. But I mean, you could substitute anything for Mormon. There's just a, a problem. And I think it's difficult to think through this or see this because we think we're, we're too, there's too much of a schism. We're too bifurcated. We're too divided. We're, we're too um, um intensely involved in the, in the, not even in the culture war, but in the orbit of the culture war. But just think if any other group with any specific belief occupied positions in an academy, well, then of course some ideas would be sacralized. And what would the, and, and then what would happen when those were institutionalized? I mean, it's, it's a problem that everybody should have a right to question and challenge these things. So uh, this actually gets to something I've been thinking about a lot recently that is it possible to create, like what we have seen is there was an attempt to create institutions that sort of evolved into this idea that you know, within the institution, there's a marketplace of ideas and we debate freely in the institution. Is that maybe just something that's not possible and that instead we have to create like different institutions for different sets of ideas and have them fight it out between themselves? Can we have a university that has critical theory and Mormons, or is that just a that's, a, that's a great question. I, I think a lot of people, I don't disagree with the premise in the, of the question whatsoever, but I think a lot of people would disagree with the question. I, I'm, I'm going to, I have a, a plan in my head for the next time someone disagrees at a public event. I've just been invited to a philosophy department to give a talk. And I, I want to know from people who disagree that having a conversation, an open conversation in the university is possible. Here's my question to you. What beliefs do you think people are concerned about who don't share your values if they think those beliefs can't be articulated in a university classroom? Like, what would examples of that be for someone who thinks that there is a problem with free speech? Like, say, not even 10 of them, five of them. What would five of those things be? And I think that the, the, we've created a culture right now where 
people are pretending to believe things that are clearly false, right? Or, or they have no evidence for, it's completely unsubstantiated, uh, um, or, or there's actually evidence against. And, you know, examples of this would be, for example, or they have straw men for things. You know, you just don't like trans people as opposed to known. I've never met a single person who's who's against a trans man in sports. I've never even heard an argument for it. They're against trans people born biological, biologically male who are at some point either self-identify or meet certain criteria uh, participating in women's only sports. And so we were asking people to pretend or change their conceptions of fairness. But what we've done is we've created a culture in which people are utterly terrified to even uh, either voice their sense of wonder or ask questions or ask for evidence. I mean, I know personally from my experience, when I've asked for evidence for things and not even wading into the trans issue, people have told me that my asking for evidence is itself a microaggression. I mean, Amazing. I mean, asking for evidence should never be a microaggression. In fact, that's your 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 duty. It should be your general. default position, right? Um, yeah, you should ask for evidence, and you should model that behavior for other people. But we've created a culture of fear in which p- either people are pretending to believe things that they don't believe, or they're not pretending they're, to believe anything. They're just being silent because they're utterly terrified. Yeah, and I guess I, I'm also wondering a lot. You, I guess where you're coming from, a lot of that fear seems legitimate. Like people really actually did things to you and your friends, right, in the Northwest. Um, but how, how much, like, I can't quite tell how much of the fear is that something bad is actually going to happen to me versus just people aren't going to. Oh, well, like that's, ah, but here's the way to figure that out, which is exactly what I said before, is find people who disagree with you. And at public meetings, you ask them that question. And again, I've just been working out this myself. I just thought of this the other day. You just ask them that questions. What do you think are five things that I don't think that I can say in the classroom? And press them to that. And they they can't get out of that by saying, well, you can say anything you want. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you what you think I think five things I couldn't say in the classroom are. And then just wait to see what their response is. And then what I would do is I would tell them five things. And I would say, I would like you to repeat the things that I think I can't say. And then I would tell you them. And I can think of what they are five things easily. The five, I can think of like 50 things. But And then if they don't repeat them, doesn't that make your point? Or if you say, well, I don't want to repeat them. That's undignified or that's racist or that's homophobic or that's oppressive or it's against snails or whatever. I mean, doesn't that just reinforce the idea that there are some things that can't be said? Now, that doesn't mean the things that can't be said should be said. But that means that the things that you think can't be said actually can't be said, because if they could be said, then they'd say them. Mm -hmm. So there are things that actually can't be said. But the the overarching um, that's that's what happens when you create climates of fear. You create climates of fear and people are unwilling to say what they honestly believe. And so to tie that in, so uh, you're talking about definitions. A lot of this relates, the the, the umbrella term that seems to be doing a lot of the work here, uh, my sense is, is inclusion. Correct. Inclusion says, and there's some videos of me and the president of the University of Texas going back and forth on this, where he ultimately told me if I didn't, want to be inclusive, I probably didn't belong here. Um, fortunately, he 
can't fire me quite yet. But that that, that this idea of inclusion is, I guess, and you're, you you probably know this, but it seems like the idea is you can't say things that make certain people uncomfortable, uh, and that and that, that that's what they use that inclusion for. Is that is that a fair yeah. way? To Here's the way to think about inclusion. I'll tell you what inclusion the way that's used in the literature, and then I'll tell you the way that it's not. So an inclusive space is by definition a welcoming space. I have a video, I have a one minute video series on this where I translate wokish into everyday, I think it's called a wokish, woke in plain English. I translate wokish into English. And so an inclusive space is, inclusion is welcoming and everybody wants to feel welcoming. Literally, almost nobody would not want a space in which people feel welcome. But in order to create a space that feel that in which people feel welcome, you have to make sure that people don't aren't offended in that space. And then the way to make sure that people aren't offended, because if they're offended, then by definition, they won't feel welcome. So in order to do that, that being to create a space in which people feel welcome and they're not offended, you have to limit speech. So an inclusive space is a space that restricts speech. That's what inclusion means. Inclusion is not getting people of, you know, in a wheelchair and they're being, you know, African-American in there or whatever. That, that's not how the term is used. When you hear the word inclusion or when you see it in your kid's email from, from, email from your kid's school or from your dean, or that's what they're talking about. They're talking about restricting speech. And then they definitely don't think you should feel included if you don't accept diversity, equity, and inclusion as governing principles, right? So they, they have some ability to say, Certain groups should be included under inclusion, but if you have right. if you have bad views, is, is there a logically coherent mechanism for deciding who should be included, who should feel included, or is it just ad hoc? So, uh, do you remember? You, of course, you're old enough to remember the. I don't know how old you are, but you're old enough to remember the president uh, Reagan's debates. Do you remember that? Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, I'm not old enough, but I do because. Oh, uh, anyway, he debated. Person. He debated Mondale, and he had a he had a great line. I think he used it twice in different debates. There you go again. So, with all due respect, uh, I'm going to say that to you. Uh, there you go again. You're talking about logic and evidence, and these people, their logic and evidence are tools of of the patriarchy. They're they're racist instruments. Why would we go to logic and evidence? I mean, with logic and evidence. Is the master's tool show, you know, cannot disable the, the master's house. What, logic and evidence were the things that created racism in the patriarchy. They created the unequal systems that we have now that are responsible for disparate outcomes. So why would we use the very tools that we know can't disable the systems of oppression? Even yeah. language, speaking, <laughs> platforming. Yeah, so there you go again. Yeah. Um, so this dives into something I don't get a lot of chances to talk to philosophers. So I want to like all of this stuff kind of comes out of this postmodern movement, right? And this this thing has always bothered me. It's the, the postmodernists are very attached to the idea that there's no achieve, there's no way to access objective truth, right? Just, I, yeah. That, so you, you, are you looking for the Cliff Notes version of that? Yeah, so so there's, I mean that, that that's roughly, but then at the same time, these people act as if they're in sole possession of the truth, right? And is it just the fact that they don't have to engage in logic? No, that allows them it's to do more that? nuanced. It, yeah, it's more nuanced and complicated than that. The, the the 
bottom line is that there's no God's eye view. You know, there's no view from on high in which it, it doesn't mean that a lot of people mistake it for meaning there is no truth that I don't know, maybe von Klosterfeld and pedagogy is claiming that, but almost nobody is claiming like the radical constructivist. Like you just don't see that. What you're, what you see is people arguing that, that, that like Foucault, it's that, um, access to the truth is mediated through power relations. In other words, um, your situatedness in a particular perspective gives you a certain view on what is perceived to be true. And so it's not that there is no truth. I, I know you didn't say that, but, and, and then the second half of what you said is that they're in possession of uh, objective truth. That, that's, that's not what they think. They, what they do is they make the shift to lived experience. I'm sure you've heard that. And so, there's a kind of primacy of lived experience. And in the history of Western intellectual thought, it's a quite, it's a radical departure from the objectivity of, of you know, the enlightenment human reason that we can know the world, we can ascertain things through reason and evidence, et cetera, um, through the a subjective turn, a turn towards subjectivity, toward lived experience, toward personal experience, and then giving that primacy. And then once you have primacy, you can't deny somebody somebody's lived experience because all a host of other things go along with that. Like, you know, you're denying them agency and morality. Epistemically, you can't deny their, the primacy of their lived experience, et cetera. So an, an example would be, uh, let, let's say that African-Americans claim that they are uh, disproportionately pulled over by the police. And a lot of them are claiming this, like, I don't know, I'm just making this number up. Like 80% of Again, I'm making this number up just so that we'll have a, a, a data point so I can give an example. I have no idea what the figure would be, but you know, 80% of African Americans say that they've been pulled over by the police for no reason whatsoever. Um, okay, so the the idea wouldn't be that you would you would you know um, just believe you know, believe all women, believe all African American, believe all women is basically the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But it, it's basically. Um, like again, <laughs> I'm going to say a Reagan Reagan thing again. See, Bogosian's a conservative. Actually, no, that's not true. But the Reagan just it just hits it. You know, trust but verify, right? So you trust but you verify. Well, how do you verify? You verify through uh, the tools, the best available uh, evidence, tools. You know, science you, by. Uh, maybe you do some survey data and reinforce that. And then, okay, then maybe you look at the the uh, when when police call in, uh, you know, the license plate, maybe you look at self-identification on licenses to see what percentage of African-Americans are pulled over. Uh, and then you you uh, match that with, you know, the type of cars they have or what have you and what the neighborhoods they're in and the neighborhoods are white or black. But hey, we know how to adjudicate these problems and we know that science is the best way to do so. So one's lived experience might be a reason to inquire into a subject, but it can't be the be and end all of what the truth is, because we can figure out things through data and science, evidence, basically. So um, can we sort of think of wokeism as extremely bad metaphysics? Is that sort of what, the, the, you know, it, it, it's similar questions that the metaphysicians were asking, right? Like, how do we know things? What's real? All of that. But they're doing it. Well, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think about it in terms of metaphysics. I would think about it as an acute awareness of injustice. And the more, the more one is aware of injustice, the more one realizes that there's more work that needs to be done. One isn't sufficiently woke enough, but it's also the ideas that inherent or baked into systems are, are is racism. 
all kinds of systems that we see in the West, you know, and the police in the recent attacks on the police are that the police are kind of the last line of defense that protect the system. So if we take the, the police down, then the system could fall. But the system itself is inherently problematic. It denies agency and it's inherently racist and bigoted and oppressive, et cetera, et cetera. And so once one is in that mindset, then I think that the it's like a perpetual grievance that one has. And so it really, you know, the, the two words that stick out to me a lot are this kind of disrupt and dismantle, right? And these are the, correct. this is kind of the end game, right? And, and it, it, they, they seem to be fairly clear that they want to completely undo existing structures in favor of. Correct. And and James Lind, Helen Pluckrose in in, uh, in cynical theories uh, talked about dismantle and disrupt, and it has a history, it has a pedagogy, I mean a pedigree in the literature, and but but I but I interrupted, but I I just wanted to throw that uh, book out in case anybody's listening or watching this podcast. They're like, oh, well, where could I go to learn more about that? Well, you could go to cynical theories, and then Helen has a new new book coming out um, again about. Uh, postmodernism and uh, what she she calls applied postmodernism. Yeah. So all of this put together, you know, if uh, are are we have we lost universities to this mindset already? Yes. Yes. They're done, and and I I I wish them a swift death. And that's why I'm adamantly opposed to like the free speech union and people who are trying to fight for. Uh, uh, folks' rights. I respect what they're going to do. And in 2012 to 2015, I would have been, or maybe even 16, maybe even up to 2018, I would have been right there with them. But I think that it's time for the universities to die and it's time to build new institutions. And it's time to get out of the grip of ideologues, which have um, limited discourse. I mean, it's, it's not only that they've taught people nothing, it's that they've given them a backward roadmap to reality. I mean, imagine thinking about the classroom and thinking, walking into a classroom and thinking you have the right answers to moral questions, and then you're testing people on that. And these have become uh, ideological sinkholes. They've become places where wonder goes to die, like Twitter, wonder goes to die there too. But, um, and I also think that's one of the reasons you see the tremendous popularity of people like Joe Rogan. Why? Because people want honest conversations. They want to speak. They want to ask questions, things about their, they're curious about, you know, Aristotle says, you know, we, pe- people want to know all people want to know. And I, I actually think people really actually do want to know. And we have a system right now in which we have ideologues in control with no hope of getting them out. Um, and keep in mind that the Biden administration cancels student debt. That would be the literally the worst thing that could happen because then those fields that are already out in la la land, they'll have no reason to tether themselves back into reality. And so we, we have, a, we, we have to build new institutions. Yeah. And so like the you, university of Austin. Yeah. So any updates on that? <laughs> that you could uh, yeah, I think it's, it's going well. I'll be there in, in June. Uh, so I'll be, uh, and where, where are you again? What city are you in? I'm in Austin. Okay, so we should we should definitely hang out there. I'm 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 finding places to go and and uh, do jujitsu down there. June is a terrible terrible month, but hopefully they'll be air conditioned. Um, but yeah, I think it's going exceptionally well. I I'm a founding faculty member. Ayan Harshali is a founding faculty member. Kathleen Stock, who's recently risen to prominence about uh, women's only spaces, she has some fascinating fascinating work, and she 
very, very clearly articulates things that I've been thinking about for a while that, that are worth looking into. Um, yeah, and that the first classes are the forbidden classes. So I'm going to go in there and um, I'll do the first hour or two of each class. So people won't be just launched into a controversial or con difficult conversation. I'll, I'll offer them tools about how to, what do you do if you're offended, how to ask Socratic questions. How because to you have literally written the book on yeah. yes. difficult conversations. What one yes. more like, like, yeah. yeah. So that's what I'll be doing, how to plumb someone's epistemology, et cetera. Huh. Well, that's, yeah, I guess this is mostly a, mostly a downer of a conversation, but I guess we'll end on a, a little bit of hope that. No, it's a, it's a great conversation because the only way that you can solve problems is to be honest about them. And right now we're not being honest about almost any of our problems, like literally almost nothing. And the consequence of not being honest about your problems is that a strong man will come in with solutions or you won't have buy-in uh, of your populace. I mean, look, look, look what's happening. People have been ripping down all sorts of statues. Now, I couldn't possibly care less if there's even deer statues here in Portland. You don't like the deer statue, by, by all means, take, take it down, but you do so through, through a democratic process. You know, there, there are mechanisms that we have in place that if you don't like something in society, and if you're not happy with that, that's okay too. You can run for office. The mayor of Portland is the most unpopular He's, 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 I don't even want to start talking about him. That's another rabbit hole. But, you know, you're more than welcome to run for city council. You're more than welcome to run for any, any public office. So there are opportunities in the society if you don't like things. But the idea that you would just take something in your own hands because you, you think that the deer statue is racist or something, that's kind of crazy, right? I mean, that, that's kind of lala. That, that, that's, that's something that, um, the long-run implications of that approach do not seem to be something that benefits really anyone, right? <laughs> no, it's toxic to democracy. But, but the larger point is I think that we have to be honest about our problems. It's the only way to solve them. And we have a problem in the university right now, the culling of intellectual diversity, the certainty which people come in with, and many of those people have jobs for life. They've idea laundered, and we haven't talked about that, but they've basically corrupted bodies of scholarship. The other thing is we have a legitimation crisis or a legitimacy crisis. The Jürgen Habermas in the 70s, the 73 or so, uh, brought, popularized and brought that term, coined it to an extent. And the idea is we, we have record numbers of people, uh, only 15% of people trust the, the major networks. I just was reading about this the other day. Uh, um, not quite 30% of the people trust the major uh, uh, papers and the New York Times has also gone down. We have a crisis of legitimacy in this country. We don't trust our institutions. We don't trust our experts. We don't trust uh, academicians or those, those in the academy who we should trust. And so we need to be honest about that so we can talk about how to restore trust in those institutions. And the best way to do that is to make them worthy of our trust, right? They have to be merit-based and it's another conversation, but I don't think the conversation is my, perspective. I don't think it's a downer. I think we have to be honest about it so we can fix it and move forward. Well, that's what, that's what we're trying to do. Um, well, well, thank you so much, Peter, uh, for joining and uh, look forward to continuing conversations. My pleasure. I'm I'm coming to Austin in June. You want to hang out? Absolutely. Awesome. You can find me on Twitter at Peter Bogosian. I just started a Getter account in case I get booted off of Twitter. I have a Substack. Um, 
I see. I don't know. I'm all over the place, but I'll be, I'll be in Austin. We'll post, we'll post a bunch of links with the, uh, if I can figure out how to do it, I'll post a bunch of links to get to Peter's stuff. Cause he's, you know, and the when, book how to have possible conversations and if talking you're, privately he's the sort of person they're like yeah that's really important when they're talking publicly yeah, <laughs> yeah i'm i'm uh when, when we hang out too if i'm in austin if anybody's listening to this and you do jujitsu and you want to invite me to your your gym i'd love to go if you play dungeon dragons i'd love to, to join one of your games too i'm a pretty avid player of 5e i play once a week with my, my friends so great i'm looking forward to austin all right great thanks